Great. Well, um, welcome everybody to uh, another episode of Rhetoric Remix. Uh, this is a regular series of programs about uh, all things rhetorical and uh, on public speaking. Um, and I get the great fun of um, talking to <clears throat> eminent practitioners, uh, professors, leading speechwriters uh, from around the world about some aspect of rhetoric or public speaking. Uh, this week, uh, we have um, Lucinda Hold Holdworth, um, who's um, a, a very eminent speechwriter in Australia. She's written for senior politicians and figures in business. Um, and she's also written a, a, a highly acclaimed book, Leading Lines, on speechwriting. And um, so it's, it's a great pleasure to both to have Lucinda uh, because of all her experience as a highly professional speechwriter, but also because we'll get a, a bit of a, a kind of a, an angle, if you like, from Australia. We haven't spoken to uh, anyone from Australia in this series so far, so that's, that's going to be a bit of fun as well. And um, Lucinda, I think, is going to be talking about persona in speeches. Um, I hope she is, because that's what I'm expecting. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, I think one of the more interesting questions in speech making and speech writing is who do you want to be um uh, certainly i've found that in, in my own kind of activities um and uh so i'd be, be fascinated to uh hear from lucinda on you know an overview of persona in speech making and speech writing and how that can affect and help us so it's, it's a great pleasure to to have you here lucinda and you know i'd love to hear your views Great to be here. Great to join everyone. Well, I wasn't planning on giving a speech, so why don't we? Um, why don't I make a few preliminary remarks, Simon, and then we can just have yeah. a conversation? Don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, the idea of a persona in speech writing. What does that mean? Um, as a speech writer, for me. I don't, people often say to me as a speechwriter, how do you mimic the voice of the leader? How do you, how do you yeah. kind of ventriloquize the voice of a leader? And my answer to that is I don't. People don't want to work with a speechwriter to sound uh, like themselves. They want to sound better than themselves, in fact. They want to sound like a version of their very best self. And so I usually think about speechwriting for people as the voice of reason. That's where, that's the world I want to be in. So other speech writers might have different goals, but that's mine. However, when you think about leaders themselves, as we know, Simon, you've written for lots of people as I have, and they, they do have different styles. Um, and I think they do consciously or unconsciously adopt some persona that is often um quite a deep one so you might see the sort of general type persona the person that talks in the language of strategy tactics amassing the troops fighting and winning a victory a really common persona is the coach i think that's much more common now in business people like to be a little bit more gentle and um, this is about you know putting a team together different skills teamwork collaboration and so on so that idea of, uh, and when we think about that, we start to get different language, don't we, and different metaphors that would go into the speech. So if you're thinking, if you're, if you're working with a leader and you think, okay, this, is, this leader is more of a general, then you get into your kind of military metaphors, 
you start to think in, in terms of a kind of language world as well as just an idea of leadership. So that's really what I think of when I think of leadership persona. And do you think do you think it's um, it's reasonable and fair to to, uh, to say that we can choose different personas um, for our public life? Um, I'm thinking of um, you know some fairly well known um, politicians, uh, say for instance in the UK, who it appears to me have chosen to have a persona. Uh, um, if you think about Tony Blair. Um, his persona was was encapsulated in the I'm Tony, trust me. Uh, yeah. You know, that very approachable, very nice, very likable person, um, you, you know, played the guitar probably at university, was, you know, kind of everybody's favourite dude. Um, and uh, that, that that's an example of a persona that he carried forward into politics as the nice guy, the trust me. I wondered what do you think about that as you know, can yeah. leaders adopt a persona and is that reasonable? I think leaders have to adopt persona and I also think that it can sometimes be a huge challenge in politics. You see someone who's a really successful opposition leader who's a great critic of government and then they suddenly get into office and the challenge then is to find this new kind of voice, the voice of a leader. It's very different, isn't it? And some people can't make that transition uh, and others do it beautifully but the only way that they, they have to, um, that a language of anger, criticism, opposition from that, or, and also vote getting to when you're in charge, you're responsible, something big ha is happening and you have to respond to it, what a different world that is. So, of course, you have to draw on other resources and they're often not internal resources that you have, actually. It's from outside yourself that you draw on different language, different models um to succeed so definitely yeah because i mean i've been interested in boris johnson's uh, persona for a while he, he started off as a a, a a sort of bumbling professor type figure who threw in a bit of latin or greek into his speeches and generally confused everybody by his his, his overall humor and his bonhomie um which of course doesn't really fit with, with being a prime minister where you have to take rather tough and serious decisions or with a prime minister in a pandemic. Um, so I wondered what you thought about how you change your persona, if you can, yeah. as a leader, uh, yeah. to, to match your different circumstances and situations. Bar, uh, you know, Boris Johnson's such an interesting political figure, isn't he? I remember him coming down on the, what was it? Is it called a flying The, the, the wire, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's during, during the, his persona, it's, it's a very strange thing, isn't it? I, I sort of almost have a visual idea of your kind of uh, intellect, your size, your shape fitting the role. He was a great mayor. He was the right size personality for mayor. As you say, all those qualities, bonhomie, cheek, um, a kind of English, very English kind of advertising an idea of, well, to me, to an outsider of Britain and, yes. and of London, perfect for that, wonderful. Yeah. Then when he became the Brexiteer, he did that, I, you know, as an outsider just watching the sort of, uh, you know, from a cold-blooded professional point of view, from my expertise, he ran Brexit brilliantly. 
Then he gets becomes prime minister. He's got a vision, I think, of what sort of prime minister he's going to be. And that's been completely overturned now by the pandemic, completely overturned. And all those things that stood him in good stead, the humour and the cheek and the sort of relentless optimism suddenly yeah. looks not right for the times. So how can he adapt? Can he adapt? That's the question. And what about, I mean, I don't want to go on about the pandemic because, you know, we've all we talked all about it all the time. <laughs> But um, do you, have you sort of observed different leaders uh, taking on different uh, styles and persona as a, as a consequence? I mean, presumably they kind of would have to, wouldn't they? Yeah, and some of them have had to sort of do it reluctantly, I think. Um, the, the one that I really noticed is, you know, here in Australia where I am, um, the big the big shift that has occurred, it's really interesting to see, is they've most of the time politicians don't like having the experts standing around near them for reasons that mystify me, but they always like to appear like they know everything and they've got the agenda. With the pandemic, they're all too eager and actually it's a good thing to hand over to the scientists. So here in Australia we usually see a, the, the medical expert standing next to either the Prime Minister or the Premier. They are using a very different form of language. This is the language of... Um, what is what do we know what don't we know what are we trying to find out how will we know if we're doing well by the way if the evidence changes we'll change our approach this is completely different to kind of the blustering macho approach that many of our politicians take which is i know best here's what we're going to do i've noticed some of that language now very beneficially seeping into public discourse and I hope it lasts, a much more measured, much more reasonable way of speaking that doesn't profess to know everything and that looks more and more to the evidence rather than actually to values for the justification for action. So, so you mentioned earlier um, a couple of types of leadership persona, the, the general, the coach and so on. Are, are there sort of new types then emerging? I mean, you know, the kind of influence of the scientists, is that... Is that changing leadership persona in any way can, can... yeah I, I look I wonder I, I'll be very interested to see I mean the other persona that have been working well in this era I've noticed is people drawing on the kind of um well leaders who might appear erratically or might appear uh, on on kind of on major occasions what we've seen is now they've had to come some many leaders have had to appear daily. So, for instance, in America, Mario Cuomo, whose name was never heard in Australia, has become this kind of figure in Australia yeah. um, because of his appearance with his slide, slides every night. And what I notice about that is the power of a, a repetitious format in a time of change and crisis. So, by, oh, right, okay. Yeah. So by just being like a kind of newsreader, appearing every day, doesn't even matter what the format is. He just appears in the same format every day. And when we're all anxious and stressed, that is strangely reassuring, just having the leader turn up. And I think in the UK, I think you have um, three three microphones, is it? Or, and, and you have the leader. Yeah. yeah and, and, that, and I see that and I think, right, that's them coming out and they're going to talk about the virus and where they're up to, and that's strangely 
oddly reassuring. Um, the other persona that's really come out is what I think of as the good parent persona. Uh, and that's really brilliantly exemplified by Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. And she's kind of like the good parent, sets boundaries, isn't afraid to scold, uh, isn't interested really in empathising with what's going on. Like a good parent doesn't empathise with the child. They're, they're, they're ahead of the child. They're saying, this is for your own good. You're not going to like it. It's uncomfortable. We're gonna, I'm making this decision. Um, here's what I expect of you. Here's how you can contribute. Um, and that is also, I think, a very powerful and effective persona in this time. Going, yeah, yeah. going ahead, though, Simon, I mean, we're entering a new world, aren't we? And um, the other, I was discussing this with my husband. I said, What's, what are the future kind of persona? He said, maybe it's the, the expedition leader, the person that sort of carries the flag into the future. Is that, is that a new kind of persona that might develop? And I think as writers and as people thinking about speech writing, we should not be afraid to dream about what other models there might be. Sure, sure. Is is persona something that you talk about openly with 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 clients and so on? I mean, I return to that question, which I will do so again, but that who do you want to be question. Yeah. Uh, I found very, uh, very valuable. Um and I just wonder whether you actually address it op yeah, openly like that. Um, usually not, actually, because I don't really have, because, well, freelancing, I don't, I'm not close enough. I, I don't, I'll be interested to hear what you think about this, but there was, there have been some leaders, though, when I've worked with one leader for a long time when they were new and I was the experienced um, speech writer and I asked them who they admired and who they saw what kind of leader that they admired. And that gave me some clues as to what kind of model. Um, but in Australia, you know, um, generally there's a fairly narrow range. People are so conservative. So nearly every business guy I've worked with will say Steve Jobs. It's just an automatic and in a way, it's not yeah. helpful because most of them seriously are not Steve Jobs. So I just have to take that and sort of park it in a corner and then work with what I've got, really. Yeah. No, I, I think it's a, it's a, a a very useful way to um, to look at how to frame what you're going to say. Um, and I'd be interested to know whether you think you can do it for different um, different audiences, even. But um, certainly, I found that. Uh, that question of who do you want to be focuses people, and it also um, gives them a a longer vision for speeches and speech making than simply the one-off. Yes, that they're they're looking at um, you know their their public persona, if you like, mm. um, and uh, I think that can help both in terms of positioning themselves, their company and um, looking at it as something that they want to develop over time so that each speech ad addresses that question. But do you, what sort of responses do you, will you, do you get when you ask someone who do you want to be? I mean, do they say, I want to be Winston Churchill? Do they say, what do they say? I want to be Tony Blair? Like what, what sort of... Well, it's normally defensive and <laughs> um, yeah. uh, kind of nobody's ever asked me that before. Yes. Um, uh, but of course, it, it it is a light bulb moment, 
Um, and I don't know about you, but most of the time when you ask me or do things like that, you don't get a, um, a sort of straightforward reaction from, from people, but you have lit uh, a little bit of inspiration somewhere uh, around. Uh, um, and it doesn't have to be with leaders. Um, you know, for instance, in, in making a social speech, I think it can be a very helpful way to address nerves. Do you know, yeah, um, and you've just reminded me, a very good friend of mine is a, is a fiction writer and she went relatively, she wrote a book that caused, I'm not going to mention her name, but she wrote a book that caused a huge stir after many years kind of toiling away. And she very consciously thought about that question, who do I want to be? And she said she decided that she wanted to be like the women she admired in public life who were calm and authoritative. And that was very interesting for me to hear because I could see how that helped her. That sort of set a standard in her mind of what she was aiming for. Um, and, and in a strange way, you know, people talk about authenticity, but by actually having that artificial idea that helped her find something very centred within herself and she comes across as very authentic and sincere, grounded, and it's helped her having that who do I want to be question in her mind. Yeah, exactly, because personality isn't just a single trait, is it? Oh. I mean, we are different people in different circumstances in any case in our lives. We're different in the pub to uh, when we're talking in a lecture hall or, or whatever. So Absolutely. we adopt different personalities and persona naturally, quite naturally. Naturally and appropriately. I mean, the role that we play if we're a colleague or a boss. I mean, that's why someone who's a leader of the opposition and then becomes prime minister, they have to find a new kind of, they have to broaden and, and deepen who, you know, their persona. And it can be very challenging for some people to do. And actually, some people just do it so brilliantly. I'm, I'm astonished at how mobile human beings can be when required to lead, to go into a new role and to take it on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I just wondered, I mean, this is sort of slightly uh, going back a few years, but, but the, the notion of, you know, Aristotle talks about uh, ethos as, you know, kind of a, a cornerstone of making a speech. Do you think he was getting at the idea of persona in, in, in speech making, you know, how, how you come across and that that could change? Definitely. It seems to me. Yeah, I mean... I that's ethos is by far so as we know aristotle said that there's these three elements to the task of persuasion there's using logic logos um reasoned argument um the second is pathos which is evoking the right emotions in your audience to get them to be activated in the way that you aim for and the third is ethos which means something like i think character or credibility but people often think that means some sort of permanent authentic unchanging state but as you say what he's really talking about is the contingent world of persuasion that is having the credibility to give the argument for this audience on this day yes. in this context to achieve this particular purpose. And that is a changing thing, isn't it? Yes. It's a fascinating balance when one thinks about the idea of persuasion. Of, you know, if, if you address the who do you want to be, you've got to have this long-term vision of, of the person that you want to, uh, but also subtly change that for 
different circumstances and, and, and moods. And Absolutely. So on. And I think, um, you know, one of the big examples that I, you know, we think of history, it can work two ways, can't it? If we think of someone like Winston Churchill who won the Second World War and everyone remembers him and his great speeches and so on, but in 1945 he was thrown out. And that was because, yeah. I think, the British people thought he had so strongly identified with the ethos to win a war uh, that he was no, he could not, he could not, in their view, so this is a perception, be the guy that was the right guy to lead them through a period of reform necessary in the peace. So you can see yeah. that that ethos question really was an, you know, he was, he was assumed he was going to win that election. To give another example, though, you can actually win ethos through great speech making. You can win credibility. Right. So when Barack Obama got up in, was it 2004, and said there's not a black America and a white America, there's a United States of America, and all, a whole audience of people just said, well, that's going to be the next president. That's our guy. He, yeah. So what I love about a, a great speech and speech making is you can, you can create ethos through fantastic speech making, in fact. You can demonstrate your credibility for the big role that you want to play. Yes, I suppose that's why we return again and again and again to speech writing, not speech making, not just because we value the sharing of ideas, because, but because it's a very public way of testing the character and metal of the person. Yeah. That it's one of our best ways of seeing who's really who. Yeah. Uh, in public life. And it's such a, you know, for me, um, sort of I labour the point in my book, Leading Lines, it's the democratic methodology. You know, rhetoric came yeah. to the fore in democratic Athens, you know, 500 BC. And that was, the, why do we even have speech making? It's because if you have a, if you're a tyrant, then you don't need to persuade people. You just use force. But all of us who live in a democracy and want to live in a democracy know that words are our tools to make things happen, to make things change. Yeah. So, you know, it's a vital element in democratic societies and um, still tremendously effective as a way of, as you say, sorting out who are the right people, what ideas should we follow, how, you know, where do we go from here and yeah. what better way? Yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned language earlier, which is a kind of a, a, an area of fascination for me, uh, language in speeches and the, the, the tropes and the kind of imagery. Um, I, I, you were talking about the way that, that um, a different persona requires a different language, I, I think. But I, I wondered what, what you, you thought about the way that different types of speeches affect or the persona that, that's coming across. It, you know, if one thinks of a, a great example um, from antiquity, you know, Mark Antony uh, talking at Caesar's funeral, um, he, because of that twist in the rhetorical language that he uses, I come to bury Caesar not to praise him, and he goes through that twist all the time, that presents him as a very different type of person, a very humble person, just through the use of a particular type of rhetorical uh, manner. I, I, I just wondered what, you know, I, I, I love that kind of, you know, what does language do to people? Absolutely. And um, we have, I mean, 
that Shakespeare was a master, wasn't he, at showing kind of all these layers of psychology and how persuasion works so powerfully. Um, the, the choice of language that we use can, can make an extraordinary difference, in fact. And what dismays me about most modern speech making is that um, so much of it is cardboard cutout language. So it's the jargon of business and the jargon of political correctness and the jargon of politics. And we hear these words and they just wash over us. We don't wake up. We're sort of half asleep the whole time because the imagery is so stale. The language is so stale. Yeah. I mean, one reason why I think I watched Boris Johnson is because of the viv the vivid energy of his language and his funniness and his kind of um, his erudition, which meant that he's he's got sort of layers in his um, speech making that for someone like me wakes me up, makes me take notice whether I agree yeah. or disagree. So a lot of people just. I think in public life, and I'm talking about people who want to enter public life, are very cautious about language, are very lacking in the readiness to sort of use a metaphor or an image in a different way, to to play with language. Um, and that means they don't make an impact, actually, very much. So, yeah, and and... It, it, what is it? It's a homogenization of our education system, and it's also natural caution. People are afraid to be to be different in the way they speak. And yet, when the example you gave of Barack Obama, I mean that that phrase, you know, United States. I mean that's fresh language. Oh, the reason why it why it said, and the whole "yes, we can" reverberating through that speech. Yeah. Um, like like the line of a pop song, um, it, it was totally fresh, new, different. I, sadly, I think he he lost that freshness yeah. under the weight of office. Yeah. But um, it, that speech is a classic example of new language, new man. Yes, and it's also a very interesting example of ethos. I mean, it's really fresh language. It's very it's. Very inspiring, obviously, and it's also to do with how ethos works, which is it's a black American man saying these words. So yes. it, it, you know, it's the package, isn't it? It's what it's it's what yes. you present altogether. And um, he did he did as um, you know, as president, he had just the political problems of not having control of both houses of his parliament. And once you've got that, then you're actually stuck in the position where you end up having to be a commentator on what's going on rather than the driver yeah. of events. And Bill Clinton had that problem as well. So that deficiencies, which I think we can see now in their presidential achievements, and I'm sure they would agree, were partly because they're battling those forces uh, politically. But that, yeah, that freshness of language, fresh imagery, um, and also I think it's that other aspect of ethos or which goes with another term from rhetoric, a classical term, kairos, picking the time, yeah. seizing the moment, yeah. you know. Yeah. I think we go back to Julius Caesar, which is there's a tide in the affairs of man, you know, that, that yes, sense yes, of yes. at this moment what are the words that need to be said. And what, what we often find, what I've found with many leaders is, they're scared to say the thing that hasn't been said before. 
And it's like, that's why you're yeah. the leader. You're going to say it. <laughs> you are going to say this thing that's hard because that's what leaders yeah. do. You're going to say the new thing that because your job is to see a little bit further into the future than everyone else and take us there through language. Yes, exactly. Um, and I return to the, to, you know, Kennedy's um, oh, yes. speech, you know, you know, we choose to go to the moon. He, does, he didn't say we are going to. You know, we choose to go to the moon. It, it, it was an act of, you know, kind of, you know, kind of human endeavor, uh, which which uh, which I, I love, and that that gave language to the dream. Yeah, really. Absolutely, and with the other part of that speech that I really love, there's a strange riff at the end where he says, "So he says we choose to go to the moon not because it is easy, but because it is hard." But then at the end, he has this thing of, "I think we're going to do it in this decade." But it might be hard. But anyway, it's going to be done and it will be done. So there's all this stepping forward, going back in the language. And I love and I yes. love that part of that speech because it almost enacts the process of trial and error that would be necessary. Yes. So he's foreshadowing for his people, this is not going to be something that's it's gonna I'm not gonna snap my fingers. It it will be, and I think he says there's a price, and we will be paying the price that needs to be paid. It's not specific, but in yeah. those words, he foreshadows the the dangerous adventure that the nation is going to embark upon. Yes, that's a fascinating example of the very language of the speech, kind of uh, mimicking the reality of of what uh, what's taking place. It, it's it's, oh, it's so it's masterly and so kind of deceptive and you know I always think you can't tell whether people often say was that a good speech or not and I, I feel a bit like one of those sort of Chinese premiers saying it's too early to tell ask me in a thousand years because you often don't really know whether the speech has done what it needed to do until you've seen how events play out whether the leader got what they yeah. were aiming for and sometimes that's not clear straight away. Yes time time does tell all that and uh, uh, just to return to that notion of Keros, so often it is the moment that makes the speech, isn't it? Yes. I mean, for, uh, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, very, very few p great political leaders are remembered for the for the lines of their speeches. I mean, you know, we, we can probably number them on the fingers of one hand, really, other than, than Churchill or, or Roosevelt or whatever. But, you know, Tony Blair's probably remembered for the speech he gave in the morning after the death of Princess Diana, for yes. instance, and that um, you know, so it's, it is that moment. Seize the moment. Um, yes, yeah, and and capture it. And I mean, you know, I, there have been some of the most uh, extraordinary speeches have been things like um, when there was that Florida gun shooting. There was a group of young people that got up and gave some speeches, and they were just extraordinary speeches. So that was almost like they were ready. And even in the Black Lives Matter situation where families have lost someone and they've gotten up and given these extraordinary speeches and what's that that's to do with the time the moment um it can be it's to do with um i think often the urgency of the message that they want to send so you you often can feel the heat coming off a speaker if there's a sense that they have a really clear mission for their speech and that sometimes that's not going to come from politicians. That will come from people that want some specific social change. Um, Greta Thunberg's another speaker 
amazingly powerful speaker because she's got this very clear single message she's sending. Yes, and and uh, I've, I've, one of the sort of exercises I've done in the past is to to compare speeches uh, given by different uh, speakers about kind of the, the same topic. Yes. I gave time. I, I'm thinking of, for instance, um, pre uh, American presidents speak once every 10 years on the anniversary of the D-Day um. landings. And typically it's a big speech given um, on the coast of uh, Northern France. And it's been fascinating to mark the difference, you know, from Reagan, the great speech of these are the boys, boys of yeah. Pointy Hawk, who, um, you know, it almost makes you want to cry, thinking about it, to, um, uh, you, you know, the, the sort of subsequent ones, which are very much more matter of fact. Um, so that's a very interesting way into looking at the person, person and the times, isn't it? So yes, um, yes, for us here, so that Peggy Noonan speech for Reagan is one of, I mean, she was a fantastic speechwriter for him. She was the great, you know, match for him for some of his key speeches. In Australia, we yes. have um, the Gallipoli anniversary each year. Yeah, and each year, people, yes. a whole lot of people get up, and I've written some of those the speeches and. Most of the time they wash over you because people just say the same stuff. But every now and then someone says something that just, you know. So Paul Keating, who had a fantastic, uh, Prime Minister Paul Keating had a fantastic speech writer, Don Watson gave a marvellous speech. He gave a speech on the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, in which for the first time our Prime Minister didn't sort of glorify war but talked a little bit in the same language about the boys the boys, the Australian yeah. boys. Um, so you do have that. Um, yeah, I love to compare them because I think would I have written one of the good ones or would have I written one of the kind of ordinary ones or, you know, would I be good enough for that? You know, I, I, I get a kind of anxiety and tension about could I do that? Would I be up for that? I, I, I think uh, there's no doubt you would, <laughs> uh, Lucinda. I, I'm sure you would write one of the, one of the great ones. Well, thank you so much. I mean, this has been a, just a, you know a fab chat, um, and I hope one one that we'll be able to kind of repeat, and uh, we'll we'll come back to different aspects and Not subjects too. of the great topic of rhetoric um, at some stage in the future. But it's been such a pleasure and um, such a you know a delight to have your energy and knowledge uh, uh, here and. Um, Thanks so much, and we'll look forward to more chats about Australia Lovely. as well. Thank you, Simon. All right. Cheerio. Cheerio. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.